I'm Josh Fisher, director of the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia University's Earth Institute. And this is Conversations from the Leading Edge on WKCR 89.9 FM. I'm here today with Glenn Denning, professor of professional practice in international and public affairs at Columbia University. Afternoon, Glenn. Afternoon. Glenn is the director of the MPA in development practice at Columbia University, also the director of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, New York office at the Earth Institute. I thought we might start with you providing a little bit of context about the work that you do. Okay, uh, sure, Josh. Uh, basically, uh, my background is agriculture um, and uh, started out, actually, my first real job was in, in the southern Philippines, uh, in Mindanao. And uh, at the age of 23, I was actually thrown into a situation which uh, demanded agricultural development, agricultural improvement, but it was uh, really uh, a hotbed of conflict. Uh, this was the time when there was a conflict. Uh, the, the MNLF, Moro National Liberation Front, was, was fighting with the Philippine Army. And so we were, we were trying to improve food security and develop agriculture in, in quite, a, quite a hostile setting in those years. The topic of conflict has been a big part of your intellectual and professional development then. I'd say by by accident rather than rather than by planning, but uh, I think it's not. It, it's also not uh, su surprising that development projects and many many you know this was back in the 70s and in the 80s development projects you know should go to the the, the poorest areas and often the poorest areas and the most food insecure areas were actually areas that were subject to 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 hostility to to conflict and uh, and and human disruption. It's interesting you say that. It reminds me of a quote from Norman Borlaug, the 1970 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And he said, you can't build peace on empty stomachs. Right, so Norman Borlaug is, you know, for, for, for my profession, he's, he's really one of the heroes. And I had the great pleasure to meet him on a number of occasions uh, before he passed away a few years ago. But he really was the, the, the father of the Green Revolution and he, he, he said that uh, upon winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. And, you know, it, 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 it resonates uh, a lot to, to, to me, uh, you know, partly because, uh, as I mentioned, this work I, I did in the Philippines very early on in my career, but, but later I had the uh, opportunity to, uh, when I was with the International Rice Research Institute, I had the opportunity to work in Cambodia. Uh, very early on in the piece, uh, you know, very only a few years after the uh, occupation, the, the the Khmer Rouge uh, regime. So, this was quite an amazing experience um, to to be there in a post-conflict, but not exactly post-conflict because the conflict was still going on in in much of the country, and to stay with that program for for many years and see the progress that's been made. Well, can you tell me a little bit more about the Cambodia story? Okay, sure. So um, I think the the hist very quickly the history of it is that so my my background was in rice, right? So I'll I'll do it a little bit from the perspective of of rice production. In the late 1960s, early 70s, Cambodia was actually quite a large exporter of rice. Uh, it exported about half a million tons uh, per year, mostly to Africa, um, and it, it, generally speaking 
there was rural prosperity there, there and, and there was, uh, I wouldn't say prosperity, but there was, uh, agriculture was moving in, in that country. But as the Vietnam War spilt over into Cambodia in, in the early 70s, um, and the Khmer Rouge, uh, the, 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 the rebel group, uh, expanded throughout the countryside and advanced towards Phnom Penh, production uh, sharply declined. Uh, and this was really the result of, of massive human uh, dislocation. Uh, folks basically abandoned their fields and, and moved towards the city. And at one point, uh, prior to the, uh, the, not the end of the war, but, but uh, the arrival of the Khmer Rouge in Phnom Penh, the population had risen to two million. So from half a million to two million. And uh, within a matter of weeks, that population was um, uh, redistributed throughout the country and uh, the, it went down from 2 million to 10,000. So you can imagine what level of disruption has you know, occurred over those years. Firstly, folks moving from the rural areas to the cities and then this bloody uh, Khmer Rouge regime basically removing people and transferring them to all different parts of the country and certainly not necessarily to the places where they came from and organizing production brigades and the like inspired by China to increase their food production. It was a massive failure. So between 1975 and 1978, the country was in basically in perpetual famine. And uh, it was only in January 79 when um, Vietnam installed uh, uh, Hun Sen uh, as, as the new uh, president or prime minister of the country uh, that there was some level of stability and, uh, but still it was many years before I even got to go to, to, to Cambodia. It was uh, in January 1986 and I went there with the International Rice Research Institute. And we were basically asked to come in and see what we could do to resurrect the, the rice industry. There were only a few NGOs working in the country at the time. Uh, there was no diplomatic recognition of the country outside of Soviet bloc countries and India. The whole West basically ignored uh, Cambodia. So over a period of actually 10, 12, 15 years, um, our institute, Erie, the Rice Research Institute, uh, worked with uh, the government and worked with NGOs and gradually built up uh, the capacity to, to, to grow rice, to undertake research and to disseminate uh, rice technologies. And I think it was, it, it's really kind of one of the um, unsung uh, uh, success stories of, of development because, um, you know, from, from, from a low in, a, in, in the 80s of about, uh, I guess it was, uh, it, had, it had gone down to about 1.5 million hectares of rice. Today, it's about 3 million hectares of rice. So the rice area has doubled in the country. The rice yield per hectare has also doubled. And uh, overall production more or less has gone from around 2 million tons to 9 million tons. So you can see the effect of uh, gradual improvements in security, gradual improvements in uh, infrastructure, gradual improvements in, in human capacity in the sort of post-Khmer Rouge uh, era has, has led to the country actually once again becoming uh, a rice exporter. So this year um, it's expected, the government has said that it's going to be ex uh, expecting to export a million tons of rice. So it's quite a turnaround. So it's interesting, I think, from your perspective of thinking about agriculture, food security, human security, conflict, it, you know, the, the, the whole cycle that the country has gone through from um, high levels of production and export 
through the dismal uh, era of the Khmer Rouge and, and the years that followed and the resurrection of that uh, uh, agricultural uh, sector over the, the following decades. The story of Cambodia reminds me of a quote by the economist Paul Collier, uh, who, while he was at the World Bank, famously said that conflict is development in reverse. And here we see in the early years um, leading up to the Khmer Rouge, we see rice production at, in Cambodia at pretty high levels, and then conflict coming in and completely destroying the capacity of Cambodia to provide their own food security. I wonder if you would think it fair to say that just as Paul Collier said, conflict is development in reverse, development could be considered a form of peace building. There's no doubt in my mind that it would be a contributor to, to peace building. Um, there's, there's something in there called politics, and I'm not an expert in politics, but development without understanding politics uh, you know, is, is, is also probably not, not enough. But I, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely fair to say that uh, in investments in development, if we think about many of the settings where we've seen disastrous conflicts in the past, and you know, I used Cambodia as an example, but we could talk about Mozambique, we could talk about Afghanistan. I mean, these are largely rural countries. These are agrarian countries, right? It's where anywhere from 70 or 80% of the population are out there, uh, their, their food security and their livelihood is gained from their farms, right? So, you know, we know that in times of conflict, people, they, they often don't even have access to their farms, right? They, they can't even go out and plant or, or harvest, or if they can plant, they, they don't harvest. Uh, they don't have access to any kind of government extension services. They don't have access to advice. Uh, they don't have access to inputs. They don't have access to output markets, places to sell their products. So this, this kind of disruption, um, this, is, this is so central to the existence of these people. So if they're not farming, where are they? They're, they're, in, they're in cities where there's probably no employment or they're in refugee camps both of them pretty unproductive uh, you know, for, for folks in these countries. So uh, we absolutely have to find ways to concurrently end, end conflict or, 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 or reduce the pressure for conflict and invest in development. And I think that was, you know, it was really, even though the Millennium Development Goals, we're coming to the end 2015, to the end of that era, if you like, of the MDGs, they didn't really have much to say about conflict and peace and, 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 and the relationships to poverty. I, I think we actually, you know, the, the model of multi-sectoral development and the need to invest in agriculture but concurrently invest in education and health and infrastructure, clean water and the like, is, is absolutely critical if you want um, peaceful societies. It's interesting. Uh, I want to come back to the post-2015 agenda in just a few minutes. But when you speak about conflict and countries that are affected by conflict, I think about the G7 plus states, the fragile and conflict affected states. Um, one of those, one of the G7 plus member states, East Timor, uh, has a long history of conflict that ended in 1999, I believe. Um, from the period 1999 through 2004, the UN had direct 
administration over East Timor. Now we've seen East Timor gradually become a rising priority on the international agenda. I wonder if you're working in, in East Timor, if you see any corollaries between the, the Cambodia story and the East Timor story. You know, I think there are some, some, some similarities and there are some lessons to learn uh, from Cambodia and from, from other experiences, including Rwanda perhaps. Uh, indeed, uh, East Timor has, has had an awful um, <laughs> experience, if you like. It's, it's gone through, what, 250 years of essentially um, colonial neglect, uh, 24 years of occupation with a civil war going on uh, in most parts of the country. And, you know, now this sort of um, rocky road uh, to uh, democracy and uh, the last, uh, what is it, 12, 13 years of trying to rebuild a, a nation um, from almost from scratch, because when Indonesia uh, left uh, Timor, they didn't leave much, actually. Um, a, a lot of the infrastructure was damaged, um, bridges were blown up and the like. Uh, the, the country was in, in, a, in, in a pretty terrible state. You know, it's, not, it's also not, it, it's off to a bad start in any case because it's in a very, uh, uh, I'd say, you know, from an agriculturalist point of view, it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant part of, of the world. It's, it's, it's dry, it's hilly, it's rocky, it's, uh, you know, the soils aren't very fertile. Um, you know, I'll take Cambodia any day, actually, in terms of agricultural potential. But, but nevertheless, it is what it is. And there's a million people living there, just over a million people. And I, I have, I've been there several times over the past few years. And one of the things that is really, uh, you know, I, my experience in different places tells me there's potential. Uh, but to go back to Norm Borlaug, Norm Borlaug used to say, you can't eat potential. Uh, so you've got to translate that potential into something. Uh, I think proximity to Indonesia, proximity to Australia would suggest that there are market opportunities for small-scale farmers. But the thing that probably stands out about, a couple of things that stand out about East Timor to me. One is that uh, I think to a large extent, uh, certainly it's been very difficult to make advances in terms of, of, of addressing hunger and, and malnutrition. The country actually, surprisingly, really shockingly, has the highest malnutrition rate in the world of all countries that where it's measured. 58% uh, of stunting. It's a, it's, a, it's a tie with Burundi, which is an interesting country to tie with because of the similarities in some ways. Uh, a country that's gone not only through conflict, but, but, but it's, got, it's very limited in terms of its resources, its natural resources in the first place. So we've got a country uh, in, in those circumstances, and we know that stunting, it, you know, it, 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 it permanently damages uh, the folks that it affects, uh, the long-term impacts of that on, uh, you know, in, in, in the health and the growth and the intellectual development and the uh, earning abilities of people who've been, children have been affected by stunting, um, you know, that lasts a long, long time. But the interesting thing in the case of Timor-Leste is that, they have resources, they have oil. Um, and in fact, they've been pretty good at, at managing the resources that they have. Uh, and they've put together a fund called uh, the, the, the Timor-Leste Petroleum Fund, the Petroleum Fund of East Timor. 
And it, they've actually accumulated no less than almost, I think it's $17 billion now. And this is a country of 1 million people. So they actually have resources, but they have the, the highest undernutrition rate in the world. So I think our challenge and what I've been trying to you know, encourage, I guess, is, is really to have a great awareness about hunger, nutrition, food security being a priority uh, of the government so that resources from that 17 billion should be going to advancing agriculture, should be going to advancing um, a whole range of uh, investments that would lead to improved nutrition because the future of the country, the um, economic future of the country, the social cohesion of the country, I believe, will depend on uh, well-nourished people coming back to the Norm uh, Borlaug uh, quote. You, you can't, they, they, they would like to have a prosperous country and they want a peaceful country, but they can't do that on the back of hunger and, and human misery. And uh, we've seen it from time to time, flare-ups in different, in, among different groups and in different places. And uh, I think uh, you know, more investment in, in food security and in rural development will be an essential part of ensuring a peaceful future f for East Timor. I think it's really difficult to realize the gains on the economic development front, on the political development front, as well as the security front, if you don't invest in human capital. And human capital, in this case, uh, requires really building that capital um, and ensuring the, the physical well-being of the population so that you have a productive labor force 20 years in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Human capital, human capital development. I, I think if if I look back, just jumping back now to the Cambodia story, I I, th I think the yeah we we did a lot in terms of reintroducing Cambodian varieties that they thought were lost that we had stored in our gene bank. We brought back seven hundred and fifty varieties and multiplied them and redistributed them to farmers. We uh, uh, you know, in, in encouraged improvements in the way rice farming was done, but I think the biggest investment was in uh, building up national capacity. So we helped develop what was called the Cambodian Agricultural Research and Development Institute. We trained uh, dozens of Cambodians in the Philippines uh, over a period of a, a decade or so. Uh, over 6,000 Cambodians were trained under this program in country itself. Uh, and essentially the, there was a, a long period of technical assistance and, and capacity building that I think has led to that, that, uh, the, the outcome that we can see today. I, I, I think the same needs to be done in a country like Mozambique, uh, you know, where you have experience. Uh, that, that to me, um, when I look at Mozambique, and my goodness, there is a country with enormous agricultural potential, again, it, it, as Cambodia is to Timor, I think Mozambique is to Cambodia. I mean, the, the soils, the, the, the available land. Um, but, you know, it's not just technology there. It's the human resources and the infrastructure that's needed to Im improve the quality of life in, in rural areas. Because, you know, it's, to me, it's important. I remember once a, a, a British diplomat told me, he said that he was actually a, a real... Uh, skeptic and uh, he was very cynical of what was going on in Cambodia, even restoring Cambodia to its former state because he said, you know, it'll, it'll end up being 
that the same things that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge, you have to be very careful you don't create the circumstances for that to happen again. Meaning to say, what he was getting at was the urban elite and an extremely poor rural population. And, and a, a poor rural population that is food insecure, uh, lacks access, political access, uh, as well as access to markets and everything else. If those circumstances aren't corrected, you may well end up with similar experiences. We'll go through the, the cycle again. And I think we should ask the same questions in, in Timor, we should ask the same questions in Mozambique and in the future in Afghanistan. Uh, th these are all very re relevant um, questions. It's interesting you bring up the case of Mozambique. Um, Mozambique has a long history of civil war followed by a 20-year period of relative peace and stability and some incredible development gains. But some intense investment by agro-commodity firms as well as by extractive industry firms, mostly in the oil and gas and the mining sectors. This year and last year we saw the Renamo group rearm and for a brief period engage in violent conflict again. Uh, exactly the same, the sorts of dynamics that you're, that you're speaking of. It makes me wonder what the right balance is between foreign direct investment and supporting smallholders, either smallholder agriculturalists or small artisanal laborers? It's a, it's a really good question. You know, we, the, the issue of um, land investments and particularly large-scale land investments in Africa is, is, is very much, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's out there, it's being discussed right now. Uh, it's been particularly prominent since the spike in food prices in 2007, 2008. Uh, it, agriculture is now seen to be an investment opportunity. Uh, and uh, I guess, uh, I mean, it, it, there's reason to believe that. You know, we still have, we, we still have large numbers of hungry people and, and a high level of political sensitivity uh, in terms of ensuring food security, because when we had those high prices, uh, we know what happened, including in Maputo. Uh, and and uh, in fact, in 48 countries around the world, according to the International Food Policy Research Institute, there were riots of some kind resulting from the high food prices. So, you know, the, the, the technical question in many ways is how, how best to produce that food, but if you separate that from the social uh, and, and political uh, side of things uh, and, and don't take account of the fact that in many of these places still the large proportion of the population are still, are still living in rural areas, you have to do something about that. You have to do something about um, ensuring that even if you do have large-scale agricultural investments of some kind, there are ways in which smallholders can benefit from that. Now, there are different models out there. I, I can't say I really could um, rattle off many success stories at the moment, but the idea of um, having complementary investments that include, if you like, anchor agricultural investments that can provide market opportunities for small-scale farmers, that's the sort of thing I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of. I'm working in Tanzania at the moment, working with these, um, uh, what is it called, uh, the Southern uh, Agricultural uh, Growth Corridor of, of Tanzania, SAGCOT, 
And that's their idea. They're trying to bring in some of these serious <clears throat> larger investors to um, bring in infrastructure, to bring in uh, processing facilities and the like, and then connecting them to small-scale growers so that the small-scale farmers actually can benefit from these kinds of investments. So I think that that's probably the the model. So I'm not, I don't think it's it's either or. I think we have to find ways in which that can be done. I've had a number of in, investors when I was living in, in Kenya contact me and say, like, I want to invest in African agriculture. And where would, you know, where can I buy some land? I'm talking not individuals, I'm talking about sovereign growth funds, so, sovereign funds from different parts of the world. I, my answer is don't buy land, go and invest. Invest in factories, invest in ways that would enable smaller scale producers to find a market for their products. Because to me, that's, that's the big problem in, in Africa in many ways is, is connecting those small producers uh, to markets because they're actually quite efficient in most of the things they do. But they're not efficient in terms of being able to aggregate it and, and get these things into the world market. That's where they need that international investment. That makes me think about the, the post-2015 development agenda. The Millennium Development Goals focused explicitly and directly on poverty reduction um, for developing countries. The post-2015 agenda seems to be much more global in its focus and much more nuanced in its, in its approaches to these sorts of questions sustainable investment, uh, industry community relations. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about um, your view of the post-2015 agenda and how food security and peace and conflict fit in into okay. that agenda. Well, you know, the, the, the MDGs and the SDGs are coming at, at, at somewhat different points in history in terms of, I think, our level of sophistication of understanding what the global issues are. Uh, you know, the, the, the primary focus of the MDGs really was poverty reduction. It was uh, a strong awareness that uh, too many people on this planet are basically living in poverty. Uh, and, and it was kept very simple. These are the seven or eight things you need to do in order, and they should be done together and in a coordinated manner. And in that way, through addressing uh, poverty, uh, addressing hunger, addressing uh, uh, child and, and maternal mortality and education and gender and water and, and these things coming together will uh, lift people out of the poverty trap. The Sustainable Development Goals are really looking much more holistically at the issues and I think they're in some ways maybe too holistically but some people argue that. I would say not necessarily. Uh, currently, it looks as though we may have 17 goals instead of eight goals to replace the MDGs eights, eight goals. Um, what does that mean? It means that, that people think that these 17 areas of investment are actually very important. And as I go through the 17, I would defy any sensible person to say that's not important that any one of those 17 are, are not important. I think they're all important. I think they could, they could do with some reworking, uh, you know, in, in terms of making them easier to communicate because, I mean, it was tough enough to remember eight. Now we've got to remember 17. 
um, and there may be ways in which they can be combined to come up with 10 or 12 or whatever, uh, a smaller number that we can, we can work with. But that doesn't mean any of those 17 are now unimportant. They're all important. And they're probably even more than 17. And the good news really is that those 17 came out of a pretty um, rigorous and intensive uh, political conversation at the UN. The General Assembly, the Open Working Group came forward with these 17 goals and no less than 169 targets. And now we're talking about indicators. You know, it's all very well to do it at the level of the UN. And I think it's actually important. And by the way, considering the interests we have here, it's, I think it's great that, that uh, the new goal number 16 uh, you know, talks about peaceful and inclusive societies. There was no peaceful and inclusive society in the MDGs. That's there. I mean, I think that's an anchor that gives us an opportunity to invest in peace. And I think you do have to invest in peace. Um, the, the issue of uh, hunger, food, sustainable agriculture is covered by goal number two. Uh, it, it includes nutrition. We have to flesh out exactly what that would mean in terms of specific targets and indicators. Uh, so, so I think, you know, both of those areas would suggest to me that, that, that they're being well addressed uh, or they could be well addressed. At the end of the day, though, it's not, it's not about, it's not sufficient that we all agree on it at the General Assembly and that uh, a nice uh, declaration is hammered out in September of this year. Uh, what's important is that this is translated into national strategies and national investment plans. And it informs those plans and those plans are actually carried out. The funds are raised and they're carried out. So, you know, a lot of the focus this year for the SDGs is on September when all the countries will roll up, agree on the, agree on the declaration, agree on the goals. Um, but there are two other critically important meetings this year, international meetings. One is in July, which is financing for sustainable development. It's interesting that's actually coming ahead of the goals, uh, the, the, the big discussion in September. But this is in Addis Ababa in July. And there, there'll be really um, serious and I hope very creative discussions about how do we actually mobilize the resources to undertake the sustainable development goals. Well, Glenn, thank you for coming and sharing your insights with us on, the, on this program. This is, again, Conversations from the Leading Edge on WKCR 89.9 FM. Okay, my pleasure.